At this time, I'd like to invite up our college pastor, Chad Donahoe. Uh, while he's coming up, you may turn to 1 John chapter 4 as he'll be reading and preaching from that section of Scripture. Good morning. And 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But before um, I read this, let's uh, bow our heads and pray together. So Father in heaven, we give you thanks uh, for this uh, opportunity to gather in your name. And we give you thanks that throughout the world, you are calling worshipers to yourself and, and gathered in your name. So thank you uh, for this day that we can worship. And, uh, and I do pray that you would use this morning as we work through 1 John chapter 4, that you would use it to encourage our hearts, but also to convict us where we need to be convicted, and that you would strengthen us to live fully for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So we have been working our way through 1 John and as we come to the passage this morning, uh, probably most of your Bibles might have the heading, Test the Spirits. So along those lines, I wanted to offer a, a little quiz this morning. And by the way, it's, uh, you can relax, it's a very simple quiz, it's two questions, it's a fill in the blank and it's multiple choice. And if you fail it, that's okay, this is just my way of bringing us back up to speed with 1 John uh, prior to um, 1 John chapter 4. So, the first quiz question this morning is a fill-in-the-blank. What would you say John, uh, the first John, the whole book is actually about? If you had to say it in a word. Okay, so you're, you would get full credit if it was something along the lines of assurance. That what John is doing is he wants his readers to have assurance of fellowship with God, assurance of eternal life. And in fact, in 1 John 5, at the end of 1 John 5.13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so our next quiz question is a uh, multiple choice. And Bill laid this out nicely last week, so if you were paying attention, um, the answer is right in front of us. So here it is. Uh, according to 1 John, how can Christians have assurance Okay. Is it A, the theological test, 
that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh? Is it B, the morality test, that we seek to obey the commandments and walk in righteousness? Is it C, the social test, that we seek to love one another? Or D, all of the above? And yes, it would be D, all of the above. And what John does in his letter is he continues to cycle through these themes or these tests of genuine faith, of belief in the Son of God, of obedience to the Scriptures, as well as love of one another. So John, we could say his first concern is to establish his church, his readers, in the truth of the assurance of eternal life, that they can have intimate personal knowledge of God and Jesus Christ through, um, or the Father and the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what's in the foreground of this letter, is, is, is John wants to establish the church with great assurance. What's in the background of this letter are false teachers. And these uh, are, are, are people who are, you could say, keeping John up at night. He says this in chapter 2, 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And that takes us to our passage this morning. Because what John will do here is he will lay out a test. Okay, now, so when we think of tests, there's multiple types of tests and levels of tests. All right, you can think of tests where you get graded on a curve, where you can, you know, half-heartedly get most of it right. You may get a C, you know, you're okay. But then there's the pass-fail test. The pass-fail test is pretty simple. You either completely pass or you completely fail, right? We have these in school. I would say we have these in life. Just as an example of a, a pass-fail test in my life recently, a um, few months ago, my wife and I were driving. Uh, the radio was on. It was just relaxing. Uh, while I was listening to the radio, she was on her phone taking a personality test like Myers-Briggs uh, Myers or Enneagram Strength Finders. I can't remember which one. It was pretty quiet, but then she breaks the silence with this question. She says, so would you say I'm easygoing or complicated and difficult? Okay. So I'm driving. thinking, okay, I don't think she intended for this to be a pass-fail test, but this is a pass-fail test. I'm thinking, I say... Yeah, you are easygoing. Pass. Then I added, until you're complicated and difficult. Right? Now, that's not a slight on my wife. That's all of us. We're all easygoing until we're difficult and complicated. And she had a, actually, a, a, she laughed and had a funny response that I won't mention. But all that to say, most pass-fail tests, whether in school or in life, are, are along these lines in the grand scheme of things, it's just not the end of the world. Grand scheme of things, it's not life and death. But that's not the pass-fail test that we're going to find in this passage this morning. The pass-fail test that John will lay out is life and death, because it has everything to do with eternal life if you pass the test, and eternal condemnation to fail this test. Because what John is really concerned with is there have already been some of the people, his readers, some of the people in the church that have left the church due to false teachers. And he fears that more may succumb to this false teaching. 
And the bad news is that the false teachers did not die off in John's generation. They're in every generation, right? And sometimes they may be so sincere and genuine, but at the end of the day, they lead away from Christ and the truth of the scriptures. But the good news this morning is at the heart of this passage is this verse, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's our hope that we can cling to this morning. So what John will do, he lays out first a command with a warning in verse 1. Then in verses 2 and 3, we'll see the pass-fail test that he gives. And then finally in verses 4 through 6, we'll look at some assurances that John gives to the church. So he begins first with a command and a warning in verse 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, so he says, Beloved. Now, normally we don't talk that way around here. Some of your translations may have dear friends, and that's the heart of it. John's saying, Dear friends, listen to me. This is urgent. Don't believe everything that you hear. So he begins with this command. Do not believe every spirit, but test or examine the spirits to see where they originated from. Because, and then he brings the warning, they could be false prophets. So when John refers to spirits, what he's really talking about would be the teachers and the teachings. Okay, And the question of where did they originate from. He mentions false prophets. So a prophet... A prophet is a teacher who speaks under the inspiration of a supernatural power. So the spirit is either from the spirit of God, which would be the spirit of truth, or the spirit of Satan, the spirit of error. And John's warning continues in, at the end of verse 1, where he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world already. And then he picks the same warning up in verse 3 where he says, This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So these false prophets carry the spirit of the Antichrist. Right? This is uh, the spirit seeking to lead away from the truth of Christ as it's found in the scriptures. And John warns uh, that these, uh, the spirit of these false prophets, the spirit of the Antichrist, is already at work in the world. And when John mentions world, what he's referring to is the system that it's, that's at, uh, at odds with the Christian faith. John already spoke of the world in chapter 2. As you recall, uh, chapter 2.16, John says, the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. And so, Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the world has been perverted. It's been twisted. And so God's good gifts that he has given become twisted. Beauty is twisted to lust. Sexuality is twisted to selfish sensuality. Possessions are twisted to gauge our personal success in life. Work can be twisted to become our identity. So many of God's good gifts are twisted, but that's not all. God's word in the world is twisted as well. If 
by these false prophets. And John adds this in verse 3. You heard it was coming, these false prophets, the spirit of the Antichrist. You heard it was coming, and now it's here. When did they hear it was coming? When were they warned? Jesus, in Matthew 7, 15, said this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And further, in Matthew 24, verse 11, Jesus said, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Then in verse 24, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John is just echoing Jesus and Jesus' warnings of what was to come by way of the false prophets. But it wasn't just John. The apostle Paul also writes to the Ephesians elders in Acts, and he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. Paul goes on to say, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And pretty much the whole book of Jude, you could say, is about the danger of false teachers and the need for the church to fight for the truth. And John says, you were, war you were warned about these false teachers, and they're here. And if you notice in your Bibles, this section does not have parentheses around it as if it's unimportant or not as significant as the rest of Scripture. This is incredibly significant to John because of what is happening to the church. And he actually warned uh, about this previously in chapter 2. Go ahead and turn a couple of chapters back to chapter 2. Specifically, verse 18. John says, children... Now, again, John now is an, is an older man. This would be a term of affection towards the church. Um, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. As Bill has explained as he's been preaching through John, uh, when, when, John uses, um, when John uses the last hour, he means the period of time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. In other words, the period of time from the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus until he returns again, and that could be at any time. And the point is this. So we are in the last hour. And because we're in the last hour, we must be sober minded. The book of Revelation gives us a, a glimpse into this last hour, especially in, verse, or in chapter 12, that 
the Lord gives John this vision. This is the same John that wrote 1 John. Gives John this vision of the serpent, um, the, ancient, uh, the ancient serpent, the dragon, or Satan, so to speak, who was defeated at the cross. But again, as, as chapter 12 continues on, it says, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So Revelation tells us that the dragon became furious and went to make war against God's people. On those, the scriptures say, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan is furious and his weapon is deception. And the deception of the enemy comes in lots of forms. So I recently finished um, an interesting book called Strange Rites, New Religion for a Godless World by Tara Isabella Burton. It was uh, put out this year in 2020. Made me reflect a lot on our culture and especially um, our youth culture uh, of what they're growing up in. And, and what this book does, it talks about, it breaks American religion, so to speak, into two categories. One is institutional religion. And by that meaning, uh, like what churches are so often um, based on, of creeds and the truth of God as found in the scriptures. But then she contrasts that with intuitional religion, what feels right. And she boils down intuitional religion into two doctrines. First, there is no objective right and wrong. Right? There's no objective truth from God, uh, no, nothing objective. Right? And then the second one is that I am the only truth I know. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist in our age. And this goes all the way back. This actually is not new. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in chapter uh, Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke. And as he spoke, he brought life, right? And it was very good. But then we get to chapter 3, Genesis 3, and it's Satan who speaks. And he actually twists God's word multiple times. Satan asks Eve, did God really say you can't eat any of this, any of these trees? Eve's like, no, that's not what God said. We just, the certain one we can't eat. And then Satan twists again. He goes, well, uh, actually, Contrary to what God said, if you eat of it, surely you won't die. And then Eve, um, Eve looks at it, and, uh, and she saw that it was good for food, delightful to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. And in essence, right then, Eve is like, this fruit, this just feels right. right? That's the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the age, of I will be a truth to myself. I will make up my own truth as opposed to listening to the word of God. And again, for us, the goodness of being able to see what God brought about in Genesis 1 and 2 was life. What the enemy brings about is death and curse. And so the question is, what voice do we listen to? What voice do we subject ourselves to? So we have, first from John, the command, 
to test every spirit, right? And then uh, the warning of the false prophets that are in the world. And next, we come to the pass-fail test that John offers. It says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He's saying, this is the test. Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? The test, is the incarnation true? Did it really happen? And John writes uh, that every spirit that confesses, and this word confess, it's, it's a profession of faith, right? Um, did Jesus Christ really come in the flesh? And if you claim yes, that is from God. For those who claim no, that is not from God. And why is John laying out this test? The doctrine of the incarnation was being challenged at this time in the church. Now, we, we don't, uh, here's what we know, right? They were denying that the Son of God could have taken on flesh, that Jesus potentially only appeared to have human flesh. It's because in their view, the very belief that God, uh, because the material world and the body were understood as evil, the thought that God would take on flesh um, did not make any sense. It was foolish to think that God would put himself in such a lowly condition and in a body that would experience suffering and pain. So it was the denial of the incarnation that Christ was really born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. But it wasn't just, it's not just in John's day that there are challenges to the incarnation of Christ. It's every generation. All right, just a little over a decade ago, I had a Bible study with a group of college students. And one day, one of the college students came in and he brought in some videos and he said, hey, when we finish the particular book we're going over uh, in that Bible study, I don't remember what it was, he said, can we watch these videos and have discussions over them? And I knew enough about the videos. They were put out, um, they were based on a book. And this book was really popular or growing in popularity at the time. And in fact, um, this pastor, a young pastor, hip, uh, that's the thing everybody would talk about this pastor. He's young and hip and articulate, um, gaining a lot of popularity. So I grabbed the book, I read the book, and I saw the red flags all over this book. And in particular, here's one of the points um, that the author was making in the book. He says, at times, those of us who are doctrinally minded um, can treat our doctrine like a mason treats uh, laying bricks. In other words, we, we just try to um, take our doctrines and line them up carefully, one on top of the other to create a wall. And he says, but what if, what if some of those bricks are removed? Would that be a big deal? Was his argument. And he said specifically, what about the incarnation? If that's a, a brick that's removed, in other words, if we were to find out one day, he says, if we find out tomorrow that, um, that Jesus had an earthly biological father named Larry, you know, would that, uh, would that make everything crumble? And his point was no. But what do the scriptures say? Is the incarnational foundation, or is the incarnation foundational to the Christian life? Yes. According to the scriptures, 
It's a brick that cannot be removed. Here's why. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, if he did not live a perfect life for us, if he did not die for sin for us, if he did not rise from the grave conquering sin and death for us and ascend to the right hand of the Father to come again for us, then Christianity is stripped of its essential doctrines. If there is no incarnation, then there is no God-man to identify with us, no atonement for sin, no hope beyond the grave, and no hope for the world. But Scripture is clear. He did come in the flesh. He humbled himself, Philippians 2. Though he was the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross for us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 writes this, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, there's, there's God, and then there's the angelic host, and then there's the world and humanity. And the scripture is saying, God, Jesus, made a little lower than the angels, meaning humbled himself, took on flesh, and suffered. Hebrews goes on to say, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for us by the grace of God for us. Then in verses 17 and 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers, like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Again, the high, high priest's role was to bring the people to God to sacrifice, uh, offer a sacrifice, and that was Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews goes on, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to satisfy the wrath of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is a glorious truth. That sometimes, uh, if we think of it this way, sometimes when we want to identify with someone, we might say, oh yeah, been there, done that. That's Jesus, been there in our shoes, tempted, but without sin. And that allows him to sympathize with us in our weakness. And also the fact that he is without sin makes him the perfect sacrifice for sin. But the done that, uh, been there, done that, the done that isn't sin, the done that is he finished sin and death by way of the cross, been there, done that. And so, for us, when we commit that sin, that if we're rightly conscious of it, should drop us to our knees and ask the Father, how do you not turn your back on me? The Father's able to point to Jesus and say, he took on flesh, and in fact, in his flesh, he took on the whips. Isaiah 53, that talks about by his stripes we are healed, makes no sense apart from an incarnation. On his back, he took the whips. In his hands, in his legs, or his hand and his feet, he took the nails. In his flesh, he took suffering, and he took death. He gave his life for us. His obedience and righteous 
transferred to us, our sin and punishment to him. And so with this, John takes us from a command to test the spirits and a warning of the false prophets that have gone out into the world to a test of is it true that Jesus Christ, can we claim that he came in the flesh? And yes, and amen. And finally brings us to the, uh, from a pass-fail test to our response. This brings us to verse 4 and the, insur- uh, the assurance and encouragement that we have. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So I just want to say this. If you are a believer in Christ, then I want you to take great encouragement from these words. But if you, whether here this morning or watching, if you wonder if you believe or you do not believe, please take this as a sober warning from John. John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, the false prophets. You did not fall prey to their false teaching. And how did the church overcome? Was it by their great intellect? No, but by the grace of God. For he who is in you, meaning the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, is greater than he who is in the world. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of error, as John puts it. And recall the vision that I mentioned earlier from Revelation chapter 12 and the dragon, the ancient serpent. Verse 11 says this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their life even unto death. Meaning they conquered by clinging to Jesus, willing to give up their life for Christ. And this is the good news, that no matter what comes our way, and by the way, we're about to leave 2020, right? Yes, 2021 could be worse, right? We don't know, but here's the hope. If we are in Christ, nothing can touch us, nothing. Because he who is in us is greater than anything that the devil or the world can throw at us. And what's our response to this? John uh, puts up a contrast here. He says, they, the false teachers, are from the world. They speak the world. The world listens to them. He says, we, meaning the apostles, and we could say the writers of Scripture, are from God, And whoever knows God listens to us. So really, it comes down to voices. What voice do we center our lives on? What's the main voice of our day, day in and day out? What do we give our hearts and our minds to as far as the voices in our life? For many, you may have, may have a great routine with your scripture reading, and that's fantastic. If not, I would just offer January's here, right? Um, or January's around the corner. We have some read through the Bible in a year plans. Um, or if you're like me, sometimes it's two or three years. Okay, 
no shame, right? The goal is reading through the scripture. There's some out in the, uh, on, on the kiosk out there. Also, uh, we have a, uh, one um, linked to our website. And the encouragement is just simply this. Whose voice do we listen to? I remember um, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. I was back in college. And um, my Bible study leader, uh, Scott Ketchow, invited a local pastor, um, brown-haired, a man at that time, is Bill Vogler, uh, to come to our Bible study and talk to us. And, and some of us were thinking about being pastors, and we were peppering with questions, like, what do we do to, you know, what do we do to really grow? And he's like, you know what, just continue to read through the scriptures. You to read through the Bible plan, and just continue to read year after year. I treasured that advice and are out for it to us of what, what is the main voice that we listen to. So I want to end with two verses. This is from the Gospel of John, right? Uh, so the same writer as 1 John, the Gospel of John. And I want these verses to be set side by side. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, but we can't get lazy with that. This is followed up by the next one. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That you have overcome, Jesus, by the way of the cross. And we give you thanks. And I ask that you would protect us from the evil one, from the lies, from the deception. Would you protect our church that we would be uh, ones that are clinging to Christ until our life's end or until you return. And thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that Jesus identified with us, took on flesh, lived for us, died for us. And I do pray that we would, as your people, be found in a humble posture of listening, that we would be men and women um, that are devoted to your scriptures. So help us, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen.